Hey everyone, and welcome back to Motherkind, the podcast that is going to help you navigate the massive challenges of motherhood and life with more acceptance, ease, and clarity. Thanks to each and every one of you that come back every week to listen, learn, and feel inspired. If you love the podcast, do me a favor and hit subscribe. It really does make a massive difference. So through August, I have a break from recording new episodes to take a breather, reset, reconnect with the family. But we re-release the most downloaded episodes from the past six months. So these are the episodes that you guys have absolutely loved. And this week it is with Dr. Sophie Brock, who actually has a PhD in motherhood. And this episode is for you if you've ever felt that tight hold of guilt, then this is the episode for you. Before we get into the episode, I quickly just want to tell you about my next round of group coaching, which starts on the 14th of September. So if you've ever thought, gosh, I would love to work with Zoe, I would love to dive deeper into the topics that she talks about on the podcast, then now is your chance. So maybe you're feeling like you need some clarity, maybe you've got a big decision to make, maybe you're feeling disconnected from yourself, not sure about which way to go, or maybe you just want some more support in your life, then I want to support you. It's an eight-week coaching program with me and 10 amazing mothers from our Motherkind community. I bring my brilliant, if I'm allowed to say that myself, coaching skills and my incredible toolkit that I've learned over the past 10 years to help you get unstuck and to help move you from wherever you are to wherever you want to move to in any area of your life. We cover so much, including boundaries, such a big one, energy, values, clarity, and beliefs. So if you're interested, head to my website, motherkind.co for more info. Here is the episode. Sophie, welcome to the podcast. We were just saying. I don't think I've ever had someone as qualified. I mean, you literally have the PhD in motherhood. (laughs) So I am very, very, very excited to understand in this conversation about the importance of the societal context of motherhood and why that's important for us as the individual. So I'm super excited about this chat. Thank you for coming on. Thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to it as well. And it's not your everyday job title, is it? It's studying motherhood for your career. How did you get into it? Well, it's interesting because I came to it long before I was a mum myself. I was doing my Bachelor of Arts degree and we had a sociology unit, which, you know, by the way, I picked up sociology thinking definitely will drop this in the first year, end up doing a PhD in it. That's the way it goes. And I came across the term motherhood studies in research I was doing for an essay. And I just basically followed the trail and found all of this literature and research and work and thought, this is amazing. It just completely lit me up. It fascinated me. I've always had an interest, even since I was a child, in women's stories and mother's stories and mother-child relationships. It kind of led me down this pathway of curiosity, which opened up these opportunities for me to do research and focus on motherhood. So yeah, that was well before I became a mother myself. I actually finished my PhD and received confirmation that I'd been awarded the PhD the week that I went into labor with my daughter. So it was interesting timing and she was a week overdue. So there you go. Wow. There's something sort of spiritual about that. Very much so. Yeah. There's so much that I want to 
get into with you. And I guess I was thinking was last night about where should we start with this sort of huge topic of, you know, looking at the bigger picture. And I guess that would be a good place to start is what is motherhood studies and what have you learned about understanding that big picture in the societal context and why is that so important to help us navigate our individual experience? So I would first start by creating some different definitions of what we're talking about, because we can talk about motherhood, which is a big part of what my work is. And that is the bigger social context, the social structure. And I have an analogy of a theory I can share about a fish tank that we could get into, but that's one aspect, motherhood, the social dimension. And then there's mother the role. And we can also think about it as an identity. So I am a mother. What does that mean? The third definition I introduced would be mothering. So the practice of mothering, that's the actual doing of the care work of mothering. And the distinctions were made by a theorist called Sarah Ruddick, spoke about mothering and motherhood as a social construct was first kind of spoken about by someone called Adrienne Rich in her book of Woman Born. So I think even just kind of pulling that apart a little bit and saying they're different things, but we kind of lump it all together, don't we, when we talk about motherhood in our our context. So tell us about the fish tank, because I love this analogy. Thank you. Yeah. So this analogy actually came out of my PhD research originally as a concept, but it was this mouthful of a concept to say, I had no idea that I would relate it into a fish tank analogy. It just kind of slipped out when speaking to some mothers once and I rolled with it and it's become really useful. So if everyone can just picture in their minds, a round glass fish tank, this fish bowl, right? And you see the fish inside And what the fish tank represents is our society. That's the world that we live within. And then the individual fish inside are the mothers. And we can use this analogy to talk about all sorts of social structures, but here I'm talking about motherhood. What happens is when we enter into motherhood, not only do often our physical bodies change, our relationships change, our sense of identity changes, our careers often change, so much changes in our lives. But what also changes is we enter into a new world of expectations. We enter into a new world and a new role of what it means to be a mother. And there is so much meaning and expectation and pressure that comes with that. And it can feel like entering into this whole new world. And so if we go back to this fish tank analogy, we're swimming around inside this tank and written up on the tank are all of the rules of good motherhood. So all of the things that we're supposed to be and we can individually sit down and write out a perfect mother is and just start listing all of the stuff that will stream out about how we should behave around our children, about how we should love motherhood and love every minute, about generally who are we? We're generally the perfect mother, middle class, white, heterosexual, probably married, probably has two children of different sexes. She probably earns a paid income in some way. So she isn't quote unquote reliant on anyone for a financial stability or income, but she always puts her children first. You know, she never puts work before her kids. We could spend the whole episode sorry, talking about the perfect mother myth, but all of those rules are written on the tank. And the thing is, is that we absorb them from when we're children ourselves. So we build up a particular idea around what 
it means to be a mother and then bam, we're hit with it when we enter into motherhood and we internalize them. So how we experience this is we not only experience the pressure from everyone else, others who are in the tank, this has to do with power as well and different institutions that we may interact with, but it also has to do with how we judge ourselves. And that's where so much of mum guilt comes from. And so we're swimming around in this tank. We often don't know we're within it. We just think that it's natural. This is the way it's meant to be. This is just what motherhood is. Without realising all of these rules have been written up there and this fish tank looks really different to how the tank looked for our mothers or our grandmothers because it changes. And when we struggle in some way or we feel like we're not quite fitting in or we don't feel like we can live up to this idealised image of what it is supposed to mean to be a mother, we can take that on as our individual failing. We're not good enough. We're not doing a good enough job. We just need to be better, be more, try harder, whatever it is we tell ourselves. And that's where motherhood is almost synonymous with guilt, this sense that actually if we're doing it right or we're trying to, we're constantly going to feel guilty. And so that's kind of a bit of an explanation of how this analogy works to give language to the social context that we live within and to know that when we kind of ram the tank, so to speak, we are pushing up against some of those shoulds and rules there can be pushback from that and that can feel really uncomfortable and we're judged by other fish and others in the tank as well. So that's the kind of analogy that I use to give us an intersection and a a language and a way of talking about this. I think it's so helpful. It reminds me as you were speaking, when I was getting into my birth prep, one of the things that I did was I wrote out all of the sort of images that I'd had about birth and expectations that I had about birth. And it was amazing. Like some of them, as you say, I had absorbed from things that I'd watched when I was tiny and from, you know, what I'd heard from my mother and grandmother. And it's fascinating to me that I haven't done the same exercise on motherhood, given what I do. I think that would be a really powerful exercise. Like what are the beliefs and the rules that I've internalized about this role that might not be serving me now? Exactly. Yeah. Which is ultimately a values exercise, isn't it? Because when we write out that list of perfect motherhood ideals, there will be our values in there as well. It's just about us going through individually and saying, well, what's actually important to me? What have I inherited that isn't actually mine to carry here? Am I trying to live up to that are ideals that I did not actually choose and take on as part of my value system? Well, that is part of something that I talk about. I mean, probably every day, which is this empowerment piece. And I know that you talk about that. We're going to talk to that as well is what is important to me. And just that awareness, just asking that question, I think is transformational. Just that question. That's right. Because as part of being in that tank, what does it mean to be a good mother? You're not focused on what do I want? what's important for me. We're serving the other all the time. And part of this myth of idealized motherhood is self-sacrifice. So that question, even just posing that and talking about our empowerment is part of a resistance to these idealized standards. Some of the resistance, let's talk to that because I'm guessing some of the resistance is, you know, I might want to work, but I don't have access to affordable childcare in the fish tank, you know, the way that it's set up is I can't. So I guess there's societal resistance that we're going to come across and there's some incredible work being done and campaigns to try and change that for that. And then I guess the internal resistance of what happens if I don't put my child to bed every evening and I let someone else do it. 
potentially this is something I was raising right now. You know, the guilt might be there because I have this idea in my head that a perfect mother and a good mother puts their children to bed every night. Can we talk to that, the kind of external and the internal, the societal and the internal resistance? So if we go back to this analogy and we have in our minds the fish tank, there can be obstacles within the tank. So there are certain barriers that are in place for some of us that are not in place for others. And so what may be easy for one fish to swim because as a mother, they have access to affordable childcare. They've got a partner who provides financial stability. They aren't subject to institutionalised racism, a whole bunch of things. That means that they're swimming, they're mothering, doesn't have as many barriers and obstacles as somebody else. And we're positioned in different places in the tank. So I think that's really important for us to hold and grasp because it also speaks to the comparison piece of I'm not a good enough mother because I'm comparing myself to this other mother who may be actually resourced in a really different way and hold different values. Yeah, exactly. And I saw this thing once, which was just such a powerful analogy With comparison, I think we all sort of assume that we're on the same starting block and we all start running the race. And actually, the reality is some of us are right there at the front and some people, as you said, because of things like, you know, lack of economic status, lack of economic funds, institutionalised racism, disability, you know, are starting miles back and yet comparing themselves to the people who are... It's almost like we're in this huge staggered race full of unfairness and injustices And yet we're all comparing ourselves as if it was fair. Yeah. And the other piece to add to that is that we also are surrounded culturally with a language of individualization. So this sense that actually, if you're starting behind in the race or if you're struggling in some way, it's up to you and it's on your shoulders to pull yourself up and to do better and be more. And I think there's a fine line that we walk when talking about empowerment, right? Because we also don't want to strip ourselves of agency and say, well, just because I'm experiencing all these barriers, I can't experience my motherhood in a particular way. So we don't want to do that. But at the same time, we don't want to invalidate, do we, the contextual circumstances that shape our experiences. How do we do that nuance? It's something I think about an awful lot because in my day-to-day work, you know, I'm a coach. So, so much of coaching is me helping people unlock their own power, their own truths. And I'm constantly also thinking about the societal context, because as you say, it's not as easy as saying, find your empowerment, find your joy, because actually the limits and, you know, as we've been talking about, the unfairness, the injustices are incredibly real, especially right now. How do we hold that nuance of finding our power within, breaking three of those systems, patriarchal systems often, but also holding that... Sometimes that's just not possible. Look, sometimes it's not possible. And, you know, I talk about this in the context of anger and we want to try and move through anger and we have rightful reason to be angry as well. Like sometimes actually going, what are we looking at shifting here, but coming back to how we want to live and experience our lives. And something you touched on there, Zoe, that I think is really useful for us to just linger over is this sense of disempowerment that we may experience. So the individual challenges that we may be confronting in our lives as mothers that other mothers may not confront. And we're trying to find our place of agency and power. What's been really interesting to consider both in the research and the scholarship on maternal empowerment, feminist mothering, practices of motherhood that is liberated from patriarchal constraints, moving towards that, 
Part of what's been interesting that's come out of it, and I've experienced this individually as a single mother, is that sometimes the very things that supposedly disempower us, so the very things that actually place us in a particular position in the tank as not good enough and not meeting the ideals of patriarchal motherhood, of motherhood that is put on that pedestal, sometimes they can actually be our point of power. Sometimes they can be our point of difference to say, you know what, I am mothering with a disability right now. I don't fit that idealised image that is put on a pedestal. That can actually also be my pathway to freedom from being pressured to prescribe to these ideals. So, for example, as a single mother, in some ways I'm situated outside of what it means to be that perfect idealised mother because I'm not married, I don't have a partner. So in some ways and in very real ways, in economic senses and a whole bunch of other ways, that can be really disempowering and stigmatising and can come with a whole heap of social pressure. In other ways, it can also be really freeing and liberating because I can embrace my misfitting, if that makes sense. You know, we can actually say, yeah, I don't fit within the ideal. And you know what? I don't want to. And maybe there can be power and purpose and a sense of agency outside of this striving for the idealized version that actually feels really liberating. I think with some things, absolutely. With other things, particularly around access to affordable childcare, I'm thinking. Yeah. I think that's harder to do, right? I think it's hard to feel sort of liberated around actually. I just can't earn enough money, which would cover the childcare that I need to go and earn the money. You know, that terrible sort of trap. And I do want to stay on this because I think with someone like you, with your ability to think about this on a societal level, it is so important. How does someone know whether they are trapped in the story of patriarchal, as we've been describing, you know, sort of beating themselves up for not fitting into this ideal, for not doing it well enough and actually... They need to look at that and unpack it and think about where they can start to find empowered and peace with their own mothering style versus when does someone need to go, well, I just, for whatever reason, am unable because of the societal limits put on me to do that. How does someone begin to unpack that for themselves? It's incredibly complex because I guess there's so many factors that play and it's a hard thing I'm asking you to do, but I think it's important So one distinction I would probably make is the difference between identity and where we're positioned in the tank and obstacle, as in what's in our way. For example, what I just shared around single mothering, there I was speaking to identity. And the example that you gave around childcare, that's speaking to structure. And the two obviously interact and relate with each other. But I think that where we can hold our power and our sense of agency in the way that I was speaking to comes back to our identity and our self stories and our internalized narratives. And we can do that at the same time as recognizing structural barriers and obstacles. And I think we actually have to do both at the same time. And also to say that One person's empowerment and agency will look very different to another's. So we're also not trying to move towards another type of prescription or ideal, which is why I think these types of conversations and allowing space for the nuance and complexity actually is critical. We can't really do it without. 
creating space for that. And, and I recognize this can be a lot to wrap your head around at first when coming to this conversation and even thinking about motherhood as social and structural. And probably, Zoe, your listeners are well acquainted with reflexively thinking about motherhood in this way, but really kind of just pointing to our broader society and culture in many ways doesn't value motherhood or conversations about motherhood in this way, does it? No, really not. Really not. And if it is, it's incredibly, you know, we're Madonnaized, you know, like the mother is, or I've seen sort of shamed, you know, like we're terrible and it's all our fault. And the, those two sort of extremes when it is spoken about. So as you just said, you know, that this can be something to wrap your head around if you haven't thought about it in this way. And I know that you do loads of work all over the world sort of teaching. What are some of the big things that you have seen when people start to understand this concept, the big aha moments or shifts or freedoms that they're able to get from absorbing this as an idea? So how I would love to be able to answer this question is to say, we find out the information, it's empowering, we jump out of the fish tank of patriarchal motherhood and we're on the path to our liberation. Like I wish it was that narrative, but in my experience, And what's reflective from the conversations and the work that I've done is that actually it often feels a lot harder before it feels more freeing. And so we go into this place and in some ways it can be experienced as like an unmasking. You know, we're taking off the mask of motherhood that we've been asked to wear and it's a revealing and unlayering and actually also an unlearning of a whole bunch of social scripts that we've been socialized into and have adopted. And so at first it can feel a little overwhelming and daunting and it can feel as though things get harder because we start also seeing this everywhere. We start seeing it in other people, our friends, our communities or institutions around how a mother should be or what a mother means. And often that's really devalued, but after we go there to that place of challenge, which I know is, you know, often part of personal development work, isn't it? We actually need to wrestle with that a bit. At the other end of that, the most common experience that I've seen is actually a shift in the way we experience guilt and the way that we experience mum guilt. And that's the most common shift that I witness happening first on the path towards a liberated version of motherhood. Acknowledging we can't actually jump out of the tank because we're within this society and culture, but we can certainly move within it in different ways. So tell me then about why understanding all these societal constructs helps people transform their guilt. Because if we think about this fish tank, the reason why we are kept within it and the reason why it's so powerful why motherhood hasn't changed yet. You know, we talk about the motherhood revolution and one of the leading scholars in this field, her name's Professor Andrea O'Reilly, and I asked her recently, do you think we're in a motherhood revolution? And she said, no, not yet. You know, we may not see that for generations. So that was interesting. But part of us being able to shift this means focusing on where we're reinforcing these ideals on ourselves. And most commonly that happens through mum guilt. Not always. Sometimes guilt can be really valuable, but a lot of the time the guilt that we feel is a result of our internalization and an external feeling of the pressure of the shoulds. And I visualize this because I kind of like using visual analogies as a little security guard on our shoulder. I talk about it as like the guilt guard on our shoulder. And for us to ask ourselves, 
Who is that guard employed by? Who are they working on behalf of? Where are they penalizing us? Where are they shooting on us? Are they working on behalf of my values? And actually, sometimes I'm feeling guilt because I'm not living or practicing in alignment with what I do value. So that's important. Or is that guilt guard employed by patriarchal motherhood? Is that guilt guard employed by the people who are keeping that fish tank in place? You know, I use people symbolically. And once we ask that question, a lot of the time, the answer is actually the guilt guard isn't employed by our values. And that can be where we start to question and shift how we experience guilt in motherhood. And I think sometimes that guard is based on what I was modelled. So I had a mum who didn't work for 18 years and I have to work really hard because I do work, I choose to work. I have to work really hard at just noticing that, that when the guilt comes, like, oh, okay, this is because my version that I absorbed of what a mother is is someone who just stays at home. Because I know when you say patriarchal society, you also mean those absorbed messages that we got from our own smaller individualized experience of what our grandmothers, our mothers did, what our in-laws say we should do, you know. But I think it's worth underscoring that because I think so much of it comes from those people that are around us, that love us, right? But they're absorbed in their own messaging of what it means and what worked for them and Absolutely. And we're absorbing it too. You know, I mean, patriarchy, what is that? Like it's intangible. We can't easily point to it. You know, these ideologies and systems and ways of thinking are only made possible through systems, structures, and individual people. And so we will experience it through our relationships, probably most potently. It will be through our own mothers, mother-in-laws, family, friendship, relationships, which is part of the reason why when I said going into this work first can feel like a bit of a deep dive and an unraveling, that can be part of why, because it can shift our relationships too. A quick word from our sponsor, Athletic Greens. I started taking AG1 about eight months ago now because I wanted more energy and I wanted to look after my health more proactively. It's just one scoop in a cup of water every day. That's it. No need for a million different pills and supplements. And it's so simple and easy. And in each scoop, you are absorbing 75, isn't that amazing? High quality vitamins, mineral, whole food source superfoods, probiotics and adaptogens to help you start your day right. And the special blend supports your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy recovery focus and aging, basically all the things. So to make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one year supply of immune supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash motherkind. Again, that is athleticgreens.com slash motherkind to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stresses, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. And therapy is a space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever is weighing you down. Therapy is just an incredible, safe 
non-judgmental space. I absolutely love it. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule, which I think as busy mums is what we all need. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. So get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash motherkind today and get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash motherkind. Back to the episode. Can we talk a little bit about how it got this way? Has it always been this way? Because, you know, the deeper that I delve into motherhood and you know, researching it, reading it, studying it, living it. It's just such a huge dichotomy to me that every single human on this planet came from a mother. And I'm wondering, how did it become this situation where, as you've described so eloquently, you know, motherhood, mothering and the mother are all so devalued in our society, yet it's the very thing that keeps our society alive. How interesting is it, right? And this is what Adrienne Rich's book is called Of Woman Born. And she she was pointing to this, exactly what you've articulated. We're in an incredibly powerful position, actually, you know, birthing and raising and growing and nurturing the next generation. And look, part of what maternal scholars have suggested, and, you know, there can be debate about this, but potentially it's because we are so powerful that this is the way that we're devalued. Because if mothers were actually facilitated, supported, and enabled to step into the power that is theirs to claim, right? It's not taking power from anyone else. We know that we are doing a really important job in raising our children and doing the work that we do in our families. A lot of it's invisible, you know, the mental load. Actually, the world would fall apart. If mothers put their hands up and said, I am not doing this anymore, things would collapse. Economies would collapse. Think about how much of the GDP is contributed to through unpaid care work, unpaid labor. Mothers, I think about them as, again, use an analogy. We talk about the different sections of society. I see mothers as the thread. They're the thread weaving the different sections together and they're doing the work of that. And often it is hard because we don't have a choice. Often we don't have a choice to opt out or to just do less or to just take on less. It's not as easy as saying it's all about choice. But going back to your question about where did this all come from, knowing that this fish tank we're living within, particularly during the pandemic, really different to how other generations experienced motherhood. And by the way, this can be why there can sometimes be tension between different generations of mothers, of women, because they're living within different tanks and it feels like you don't quite click or understand each other because you're in different contexts. You're making choices and mothering within completely different contexts. And so where we trace it back to, there's kind of debate about this and going, was there such a thing as a matriarchal society? Anthropologists would have different things to say about that. We would really connect it back with the roots of patriarchy. And that's, you know, a whole different conversation, which an historian or anthropologist would be a better place to answer than I would be. But I found some interesting research in a context in Australia here. And it is a book written by Carla Lee, Pascoe and Petra Buskins, two maternal scholars. And they actually went back through the historical data and they found something really interesting that was After World War II, when a bunch of women, mothers, had moved into the jobs that were typically occupied by men, when men came back from the war, there actually began this campaign 
talking about martyrdom motherhood, talking about how important it was that women, mothers, were at home with their children and how vital that was as a way to move them out of the workforce to create space for the men, the soldiers who were returning home. And some have said that this is the kind of birth of intensive mothering ideology, this idea that we've got to intensively mother our children and sit on the floor and play Lego with them for hours and do all the cooking from scratch and do everything, not just the domestic sphere, but be that intensive mother, have linked it back to actually this period of time. And that's only intensified. I speak to my grandmother now and and when my great-grandmother was alive and they did not experience the pressures that we did when it comes to play with our children, engagement with our children. There were lots of pressures around being a wife, but they were experienced in a different way when it came to motherhood. So I would say that actually the motherhood we're experiencing and we're talking about here is actually a relatively new phenomenon. And when I spoke to Dr. Gabor Mate, who is, you know, one of the world's sort of leading thinkers in human development, he said it's the hardest time to be a mother since the Second World War. Yeah. For all those reasons. Yeah, that's right. And we're expected to not only fulfill all of the needs of our children, but also of our community. And we're doing so often without adequate support. You know, it lands on our shoulders. And, you know, we talk about this lost village in motherhood and where's the village? Village is all out working. You know, this is part of our capitalist and consumerist structures as well contribute to this. So it's all interlinked. And I think for us as individual mothers living within that context, it can be really helpful to sometimes just take a pause and say, I wasn't actually designed to do this alone. I wasn't meant to mother my baby and my four-year-old at home in an apartment all day long. Like if I'm finding this hard, it's because this is really hard. I deserve and need more support. But yeah, as we've spoken about, sadly, often that's not the case. That's not how we're living. So you talk about mothers reclaiming motherhood. What does that mean? And what does that look like? So that idea originally came from Andrew O'Reilly, who I've referenced already. But the idea is actually to mother against motherhood. And so what that means is if we go back to the start of our conversation and we made that distinction between motherhood as the structure, mother as the individual, the identity, the role, and mothering as the practice, what this idea is getting at is that us as mothers in our power, in our responsibility, in our relationships with our children, raising the next generation of human beings, we can actually play a huge role in changing the structure of motherhood, not only through how we mother, so looking at where we experience guilt, reclaiming our power in our decision-making of what is best for us and our families without all of the shame and the should, understanding that actually maybe I don't care so much about what X, Y, and Z down the road thinks about how I mother or how I discipline my children or whatever it may be. Feeling a sense of self-confidence actually and claiming our agency's individual women is part of this, but also how we mother our children is part of this. You know, how we respect them, how we build relationship and connection with them and how we model for them what it looks and feels like to be a woman, a mother, a person who is claiming their sense of self and agency in a world that may have a whole bunch of rules that are telling them how they should be. I think that's so powerful, isn't it? Because if we can start to, in tiny ways probably to start with, challenge this, then it makes sense to me that we would raise 
children of either sex more able, more confident, more empowered to challenge the structures that they might find themselves in, even outside motherhood. That's right. Yeah. And in the same ways that we go back to the fish tank and and your point of, you know, we experience this differently according to lots of different challenges and disability and sexism and racism and a whole bunch of issues that actually intersect with motherhood. You know, so it's also through raising our children with actually active interest in what it means to be anti-racist, interest in what it means to protect our environment. All of these other social issues are actually part of our conversation here in how we want to lead our lives and how we want to raise our children. Yeah, it's so powerful and freeing to think that even a tiny part of that challenge is within us. We've talked about, you know, that really powerful list that you said, you know, listing out what are my absorbed expectations? What do I think a good mother does? And actually the second on the other side of the piece of paper, what is actually my values? What's important to me? So that's one super powerful tool that you've already shared of how we can start to shift this. What are some others how can we be part of this change as you say well I would say first off being really conscious and mindful of our language that we use in how we describe ourselves as mothers so I would love to see us to away with the phrase I'm just a mother I'm just a mother you know we hear that so often there is such a focus on how we engage with paid work, you know, questions around what do you do and being conscious of how we respond to that question. And I often try to actually answer with mothering first and claim my role and identity as a mother, but to also recognize, I think it is very important to do both things at the same time. One, claim our mothering, recognize how important it is, the work that we are doing, understand that it has value. Yes, it's not financial value in most of our societies, but it does have a value economically. It's just not named. And at the same time, recognize that we can and we do exist outside of our mothering. And to know that that is actually part of reclaimed and empowered motherhood is to say that I am a mother and that may be a central part of my identity, but just because I exist outside of my motherhood does not diminish or take away from my motherhood. It actually enriches and adds to it. Yeah, that's so important. A big shift that I've had since, you know, really starting to understand this more is I don't say anymore do you work? I will say, do you also do paid work? And when I say that, I can almost see, like I say at the school gates, like, oh, you've got a good day. Do you also do paid work as well as parenting? And you can see like the moment of someone computing what I've said. And then just the, it's almost like a shoulder drop moment. And I think if we could all do that, it's such a tiny shift, as you say, you know, of recognizing if you're a parent, you are working, you are working really, really hard. A lot of that work, we know it's 60 to 70% of the invisible labor is done by the mother in the home. So a lot of that is just unpaid. It's unpaid. That's right. And what do we value in our society? We value money. (laughs) So, you know, when we're stepping into roles that aren't financially remunerated, then yeah, that means that we're going to be devalued socially. And so I love the way that you have shared a really simple 
strategy actually of resistance that can be done in a subtle way as well. And to add to that, and you mentioned that, you know, the mental load and the emotional labor, I also think it can be valuable for us to just externalize all of the internal things we are holding, because sometimes we need to see it out on paper for ourselves to actually give ourselves pause and say, you know what? I am doing a lot. I am carrying a lot. I'm not just anything. I am doing a good enough job here. And that can then be our little key or ticket or opportunity to allow ourselves to step back into a place of rest if we have the opportunity to, because I know that's something we can find really hard. This is something I sometimes ask clients to do. If I'm working with someone and they'll be, you know, beating themselves up, I'll say, let's just stop. Let's just write down everything you're holding right now. And they'll start off and they'll write sort of three or four things. And I'm like, there's more. And there'll be about 100 to 200 things just in that moment that they'll be holding. And often when someone looks at that list, the first thing that happens is a grief from the recognition. Like, oh my gosh. And then the next thing that happens, maybe with some helpful questions from me, is a huge compassion for themselves. You know, the mothers that I work with tend to say, oh my gosh, like I'm incredible. In this moment, I am holding on to 200 plus really important things, really important things that are, you know, vital for my extended family, myself, my children. And so I love that idea of just the power, isn't it, of externalizing everything that we're holding and the compassion that comes from that. No wonder we are finding it hard. Like just before I got on this podcast episode, just before I clicked the link, My head is like, you've not booked Jessie's birthday party and it's in two weeks and where she wants to go is probably full now. That's what I'm entering, you know, this conversation with. And it's just remarkable, isn't it? The compassion that we need to extend ourselves for everything that we've talked about. That's exactly right. And to know that oftentimes our work isn't valued and appreciated externally, unless we completely stop doing it and things fall apart and we love our families, we love our children and we have responsibility in keeping things going. So often, unless there's a crisis, we do just keep going even when we are struggling. And the second part of that, I think, and I wish this wasn't the case, but it's been my experience that unless we value ourselves, others don't. For us to actually say, you know what, if I want to be valued and appreciated and acknowledged, I need to stop and value and appreciate and acknowledge what I'm doing here and what I'm holding and who it is I am and knowing that actually all of that stuff, the list of 200 things doesn't make me any more or less valuable as a person, more or less valuable or worthy as a human being. And to know that if we drop some of that or move away from some of that or detach, that also shouldn't mean a shift in our sense of worth. That's so true. We teach others how to treat us in so many ways you know really overt ways and really subtle ways and I think there's so much freedom in that idea that we can value ourselves and this is something that I do you know when I'm sort of journaling I do that every night I'm always working hard to recognize what I've done I don't expect everyone around me to they've got their own stuff going on it's nice if they do right but I've really made this practice intentional of thanking myself (laughs) being like you did an amazing job there because it really does make a difference. It really does make a difference recognizing it for myself. And sometimes if I really need some recognition, I'll actually say to Guy or the kids, like, I've worked really hard on this meal. Like, 
it would be really nice if you could appreciate it. It's not that they're bad people. You know, I might forget to send you an email to thank you for your amazing time and wisdom this morning. I might forget to do that. Doesn't mean that I don't feel it. And, you know, do you know what I mean? So I think the moment we externalize that need for our internal validation, it's trickier terrain than if we can learn in simple ways to give it to ourselves. And that self-gift as well is one that has such a deeper impact than any validation externally can offer us. You know, and this sense too, I think that's a beautiful practice to embrace. And I think of it as self-celebration and the ways in which as women and particularly as mothers, that part of ourselves can often be really shamed. Like, you know, that experience of maybe you've worked really hard to put together a family meal or a Christmas dinner and people are raving over it. And we have this tendency to say, it was nothing. It wasn't too much trouble oh, don't worry about it. We can sometimes minimize how much we do put in. And so I think that's a really beautiful practice for us to embrace, to push back against that. Yeah, that's so true. I went to this kid's birthday party a while back and the mum had clearly put in so much effort. And I said to her, this is incredible. Like you've clearly put in a lot of work. It wasn't in you know, making it all look good. She'd done this kind of trail through the woods and I could see that she'd sat up and she'd plotted the route. And and I said to her, how did you fit this in? She also runs a startup. And she said, oh, I was up till 4am. And I said to her, thank you for your honesty. Because in that moment, I said, I have even more sort of gratitude for what you've created for these kids. It is incredible. Is there anything that I could do to help? Is actually what I said next? Because I was like, oh my God. But I really appreciated that moment, honestly, because I think it would have been very easy for her had she maybe not had that esteem, I guess, to be so honest, to go, oh, it was nothing. I just fitted it in. And that would have made me feel like, holy shit, I can't even book the soft play. I'm not even doing it myself. (laughs) You know, so I think there's something when you talk about mothers reclaiming motherhood, I think there's something about us being more honest with each other. You know, we're so easy to say, fine, good. It's all great at the school gates. And I've noticed that when I'm honest at the school gates, you know, and someone says, how are you doing? I'll say, I feel really anxious this morning. I always get like a sort of honest response back. And I think that is a really powerful way that as a group, we can help each other out. And you've just shared a couple of examples there of what would be actually empowered mothering that creates and clears the way for other mothers to join you. Because going back to the fish tank again, if you think about it as a swell of water, like if you're moving in one direction that is actually different to how others are doing it, if you're creating little cracks in that tank, you can actually create a sense of momentum to bring others with you and to create that space and to open space for conversations as you've done in just reclaiming our sense of experience and being willing to ask the question and to go to the places that often aren't gone in general conversations. So yeah, I love those examples. A cool invitation to everyone listening. Like next time someone asks you how you're doing, if it feels safe and they feel safe, could we really start sharing more with each other or something that you are struggling with? I had it this morning. Someone said, oh, how are you doing? And I was like, I'm really stressed. I've invited 11 people for Christmas in our new house and I have one sofa that seats two people. So I'm kind of worrying that, you know, this is another thing on the invisible load. She said to me, she said, don't worry, I've got three sofas. I don't need them. You can borrow them. And it's such a tiny, tiny, tiny example, isn't it? But I thought, God, had I said, yeah, fine, I'm all great. I would have really robbed myself of that opportunity to be helped. So that's such a cool challenge for everyone listening, honesty and asking for help. 
Yeah. And how you asking for help is a gift for another because they get to offer that help. And it also gives them permission to ask for help back. And she gets rid of the sofas. She's like, I don't know what I was going to do with them. I was like, there you go. (laughs) I'm doing your favor. (laughs) Exactly. Well, gosh, this conversation has been so enlightening. And I'm really, really, really thinking about how we as the mothers can reclaim motherhood in tiny ways to start with. So thank you for that. And I always ask the same question at the end, which is if you could give just one gift to all the mothers in the world, what would that one gift be and why? I would give mothers the gift of safety, actually, because I don't think that we can do any of this work of reclaiming our empowerment unless we have safety in our lives, in our bodies. And so I really, I guess, want to just acknowledge the basicness of that, that so many aren't afforded. And then to say, I would give every mother the gift of knowing that she's enough. She's doing enough. She always has been enough. She has never had to earn her worth. It is so often that we are conditioned out of it from often when we're little girls ourselves. So that gift of safety and the gift of knowing that you are enough as you are. And I think that's the starting place for our empowerment. That's beautiful. Thank you. Thank you for this conversation. So that was the episode. I hope that you really enjoyed it. As ever, if you did, please consider sharing it with your friends and leaving me a review on iTunes. It really does make a difference to the number of mums that we can reach with the brilliant wisdom of the guests I have on. Also, just a reminder about the Family Reset Plan. It's my latest offering to parents. I think that we are living in probably the challenge of our lifetimes. Well, definitely so far. And as parents, we not only have to support ourselves, we also have to support our children. And that is a lot. So the Family Reset Plan is myself and two brilliant psychologists And we give you step-by-step, simple, applicable ways that you can support yourself emotionally to feel stronger, calmer, and therefore to support your children in a different way. It's all grounded in psychology and neuroscience. It's just £25 currently. And if you work for the NHS, it is totally free for you. So check out the website, familyresetplan.co.uk. Take care. I'll see you next time.